Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, Adam and I are talking about the weirdest superhero movie that Martin Scorsese never made, newly in theaters, which is Todd Phillips' Joker. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today, in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam how Joker might help us think about life in the church and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Joker for this coming Sunday, which will be the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, October 20th. Finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So... Adam, I'm going to be honest, I'm not even sure how to introduce this movie. On one hand, we are looking at DC's most recent attempt to make a good superhero movie. On the other hand, what Todd Phillips has done here with a Joker origin story, an origin story for the kind of iconic Batman villain, feels pretty far removed from something like Wonder Woman or Justice League. So instead of making a whiz-bang MCU wannabe, he's made something that feels much grittier, much older, I referenced Scorsese in the very open. This movie has a lot more in common, or at least it wants to, with Taxi Driver or King of Comedy than it does with Aquaman. So we've got Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, a down-on-his-luck professional rent-a-clown with some pretty apparent mental illness. But what he really wants to be when he grows up is a professional comic, and the problem is that society has dealt him a rough hand. Also, the problem is that he's not that funny. But as push comes to shove and as Flex frustrations mount, this movie eventually finds a sort of sadism inside him that comes to the surface and gradually unleashes the nihilistic Joker that Batman will, I suppose, grow up to fight. Adam, I think you can already hear my ambivalence about this one, even in the copy. But this movie was a big deal at the Toronto Film Festival. It has gotten rave reviews in some circles and a bunch of hand-wringing in others. It feels like a thing we should talk about, so we're here talking about it. So let me ask you this. What did you think? How was the movie? I think this is actually the hardest question to answer because I feel like I have a lot of really incoherent ideas about this movie, and that will ultimately prevent me from saying it was a terrible movie or saying it was a good movie or saying it was a so-so movie. I feel like when I hear people talk about this movie, I'm able to affirm what their particular uh, perspective is without actually um, saying that should be the definitive perspective on this movie. Um, I have to say that Watching this movie was one of the more unnerving experiences of my recent life of, of maybe the the uh, my movie going life over the last five years. Um, I went and saw it in the theater after church yesterday and I have I have a cold. So I was like deep in a haze of decongestion and NyQuil watching this movie 
that is unsettling in its tone and in its subject matter. And there was some close to me in the theater who laughed at very inopportune moments in places that were not funny, <laughs> right. which considering the subject matter of the movie and right. the main character who has a disorder by which he laughs when he feels nervous or he feels like he things are getting out of control. He, he has an uncontrollable laugh. And that is the plot mechanism by which a lot of different things happen in this movie. And so here I am watching someone who wants to make people laugh, cannot do that, laughs inappropriately at different things. And then next to me is someone doing that same thing. And I'm watching this in a deep haze of decongestion. And I'm trying to formulate some ideas so that we can talk. And really what I have is incoherent ideas. Um, the thing that stood out to me right from the, from the jump is that Joaquin Phoenix is magnetic in this movie. Yeah, I think no doubt. He is a top tier actor um, in, in film right now. And he deserves his place in, um, in that canon along with, you know, Daniel Day Lewis or Tom Hanks or whatever. And his ability to um, to communicate pathos, even with the movie where I, I don't think it's giving him story wise or at least sort of genre wise much to do. Uh, he's able to generate a whole lot. Um, I also wonder, is this is, I mean, can we call this a superhero film? This is not a superhero film. This is this is a gritty 1970s genre film. It's um, and I feel like it's been Trojan horsed into our consciousness because most indie character studies like this would show up at your local art house and we would maybe the in the conversation wouldn't be so uh, widespread. But because we say this is coming from the D.C. canon, um, I don't know if that's just a cynical ploy to make a lot of money while also making basically a character flick or if it's this in, you know, ingenious way to sort of Trojan horse, some richer, deeper ideas and nuance into conversations with respect to the genre of the superhero. Those are some of my initial thoughts, but I, and I have more, but what about you? What did you yeah. think while you watched it and what stood out to you as important and worth talking about? I think your incoherence is not your fault. I think your incoherence is... is <laughs> I appreciate that. No, and I, 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 I think your incoherence logically flows from a film that is not entirely on the same page with itself all the time. And the more I have thought about it and the more I've looked at it, the less it's held together. There's a lot of understandable comparisons between this film and Taxi Driver, King of Comedy. That's clearly what it's going for. I, I am not convinced for a number of reasons. And let me ask you this question. Do you think that this movie wants us to empathize with Arthur Fleck? I, I think it does at certain points, but then it will totally undermine that. Um, and and that's that's what was so confusing about it, is that there are these moments where you, you see the sort of social services taken away or you see the ways in which um, people don't know how to act with a measure of compassion towards those who have a mental illness. And you think, okay, yeah, that that's an important idea. And I think that that's worth something worth considering. And, but 
and it's not the violence ultimately in the final act that that undermines it. I think it's just the the story itself doesn't actually give him room to to figure that out, and it, and it deals in some some tropes that I I don't think actually serve it well. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. I, I think I'm even less sold that uh, we are invited to empathize with this character. Um, I, I think the, the the movie holds him at a distance throughout. And for me, that is the obstacle to joining in some of these readings that are celebrating Joker as a film, which is about our misunderstanding of this this forgotten character who then breaks because society doesn't give him a chance, which is the the taxi driver Travis Bickle story, right? But Travis Bickle, Scorsese is very good about building up the, uh, the empathy of the audience with Bickle over the course of Taxi Driver in a way that I'm not sure happens here in Joker. I feel like the movie holds him at a distance. I, I, I also think, in addition to those comparisons with Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, the film that kept coming to mind for me here was Fight Club. And I have huh. a very similar reaction to Joker as I have ultimately with Fight Club. When I went to see Fight Club, I was in college, and I went to that movie, and I fell head over heels in love with it. And it was all I wanted to talk about for, like, weeks afterwards. Yeah, me too. And and I still think that movie is incredibly well made, but it, it's got a problem at the center of it. And, I, I, and it was named for me by... Uh, a, a teacher of mine at, in college. So I went to talk to my film studies professor, and I was like, "Look, this the movie is amazing, man! You gotta go see it. It's awesome." And it's like, I, I went to see it, and let, let, let's talk about how um, the the role of mental illness in this movie and the way in which it um, undermines the social critiques in the film. So by the end of Fight Club, you have the panorama where all of the institutions of financial <laughs> Um, capital are being destroyed. This movie makes this huge overture about the importance of bringing capitalism down. And then it says, you know, you'd actually have to be crazy to think this is a good idea. By, by, by saying the character that has been espousing this philosophy the whole time is actually mentally unwell. And so you place this big social critique in the vehicle of someone who the film also labels as as being sick, um, and and I think the conclusion that reaches is is not particularly helpful to the cause of people mm-hmm. who might actually think that some of those institutions of capital could use some correction. I think that exact problem shows up here in Joker, where this movie is trying to do, sort of on the margins and sort of in the center, a big broad swinging social critique about. Uh, economic inequality and social ostracism. It's got this whole thread line, which is about how um, Arthur has become uh, sort of an anonymous public hero. Riots are breaking out to bring down Wall Street and bring down capital. He's he's becoming um, he's becoming a public hero. And the media is conspiring in the middle of this to to help this like generate this narrative. Yeah, absolutely. But at the center of it. Uh, is a character whose whose mental illness doesn't do any favors for how we talk about mental illness, but it also certainly doesn't do any favors to how we talk about economic critique. And it, it says, actually, no, you'd have to be like a 
you'd have to be following a nihilistic weirdo sadist in order to think any of that was a good idea. And, and that's where I find it deeply disappointing. Yeah, and, and it can't have both ways, right? And I think that that's what it wants to do. It wants it wants to have it both ways and call it nuance. Mm-hmm. But but the both sidesism isn't actually nuance. It's uh, it's it's muddied. It doesn't have a coherent ultimately there. It doesn't have a center. I mean, and that said, it it does have a character, and that character does is at times. Um, uh, magnetic and interesting is at times the object of pathos is at times sort of terrifying. And, and I think like, this is the question with the Joker, which is like, and I'm not the only person to, to have made this point is that like every generation gets their boogeyman. Right. And they get their Joker. Right. And, and it's, it's worth considering like the Jokers that we create. And it, it's interesting to me that, that this is a, a, a at heart, an origin story. Um, but it's an origin of a character that we are supposed to know, but by the end, there's no very little resemblance to the Joker as we understand the Joker within the comics or within the canon of the story itself. And that's fine. I actually don't have a problem with that. Um, except that it is going to continue to trade in that story and use that story to, um, to try and make some larger points about our current culture and about our current world um, that I don't think actually hold up in part because there's uh, it's not, it's not exactly clear if he's um, if this, if he is a pathetic in the sense of like eliciting pathos or if he's a supervillain or if he's like, um, Batman's arch nemesis and Thomas Wayne is uh, is supposed to be his father or not his father. I mean, it it leaves a lot um, unsaid and it's supposed to, I think, elicit us like thinking and be like, oh, yeah, this is what good film does. Right. It, it trades in nuance. And this is what um, bad superhero movies don't do. Right. It's always white hat, black hat. It's always somebody who has. um someone who's good and someone who's bad and the stakes are always nothing less than like the world itself. And, and yet this, this movie doesn't ultimately like can't ultimately stand on its own legs without the genre template. So it wants to like destroy the genre. It seems like, but also feels like it can't move without it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Uh, and, and, and partly because I think the last act of this movie, uh, especially in this final sequence after Joker, um, he, he goes on the talk show uh, and it's a kind of explosive moment. And then he goes out into the streets. We see him arrested. And then, uh, but the streets are thronged with folks that have dressed up in clown masks. They've all been inspired by this kind of sadistic clown to go and, and take down the man. Um, and the, the city is rioting and, um, and kind of coming unglued, at which point it, it, it really begins to feel like the Gotham City that I know from comics um, and from incarnations of Batman in, in ways that actually feels like it is relying on that vision of Gotham city. 
and, and which is the moment in the film where I first felt like, oh, they actually need the comic book piece here. That, that this is where the film is is steering away from Scorsesean naturalism, and it's and it's steering towards um, we've got to set up the the ground rules for. Um, Gotham as a constantly exploding, constantly falling apart kind of uh, urban dystopia uh, that is a different, more exaggerated, um, more caricatured version of th- than the 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 very grounded vision that late seventies, early eighties, uh, and kind of Scorsese and New York stuff would would do. And and mm-hmm. so all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, this this movie is having it both ways. It is n- now that we have gotten into this last act, we are we are skidding hard towards comic book. But then I began to wonder: is any of what I am currently <laughs> watching happening? Because right. we've already established Arthur as an unreliable narrator of his own events. We have a an extended sequence towards the beginning of the film where he. Um, is watching this talk show and then imagines himself to be in the audience of the talk show and pulled up on stage, which is pretty transparently not happening as the film shows it. But then later in a more Fight Club-esque kind of thing, we discover that the relationship he has been in the whole time is not a thing that's actually happening. So we've at this point established that Arthur is is not a reliable narrator and the film is not necessarily reliably showing us the reality of his story. And so then I began to wonder, is this hero worship scene of him among the rioters on top of the police car even a thing? You know, in in certain parts of our culture right now, there's some hand-wringing over this movie with respect to sort of its depiction of violence, but also its ability to inspire violence, which I think is overwrought, to be perfectly frank, Um, because Arthur is seen as this sort of like 21st century boogeyman that's um, who um, because who who are the sort of domestic terrorists of our of our world. But, you know, white male, white disaffected males who have these delusions of grandeur, who have these delusions and have these mental illnesses. And they're the ones who are, um, who are ultimately, uh, responsible for so much of the sort of domestic terrorist terrorism of our country. At the same time, the question is whether or not like this Arthur is being glorified here or whether, um, we're supposed to, as an audience sort of immediately recognize this is a comic book movie. He's the villain, right? Like you, did you, did you lose sight of the fact that this was ultimately just a comic? Yeah. It may have had the trappings and the, the clothing of this other thing, but he's in, he's in green hair. He's got white paint on his face and, um, and he murders people. That's, that's what the genre says needs to happen. And if it were another genre, um, we could have this conversation, but it's not. And again, it's, I think it's I think it's I think it's Phillips in the movie trying to play it both ways. Right. Which is trying to scare people with the sort of object of their current terror while also saying, like, why are you scared of this thing? You shouldn't be scared of it. Um, and. I think the heart of this and this is a question I have for you is like, I still find Joaquin Phoenix I, an incredible actor. Like, I want to watch him work. And there, there's one moment, I mean, that that stood out to me. And I thought that is an amazing movie choice. And I want 
I want us to stay there, but I don't quite, it never quite does, which is after Arthur's on the train and he commits this murder, <clears throat> he's terrified and he goes into the bathroom there and he starts dancing. And it's the first time you get a sense that Arthur has like some elegance, if anything. And this is where I think like the the run of, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix does a lot of running in this movie. And the run is like crazy over-exaggerated. It, it's supposed to be clownish. Like he's always running with like shoes that are too big. And, uh, and then he gets into that bathroom and you realize like, oh, this is a moment of catharsis for him. And that solicits from him a new sense of his body. That was... I was like, that's a, interesting. I haven't seen that in a superhero movie. Um, and that's how, that felt like an incredible choice. And then that choice never really finds fruition. It, it, you know, he, you get him like dancing on the steps when he's finally in, in makeup, but it doesn't, it never really becomes what it should. It just feels like a lost opportunity. Yeah. I agree that Joaquin Phoenix's performance is certainly captivating. Um, and compelling and, and was hard to to look away from. I, I'm not sure whether I think it's good acting or just a lot of acting. Just... <laughs> that's I mean, but that's pretty that's a pretty effective uh, definition of his style. I yeah, would yeah. Say. I mean, and the I, master, I, the master is the same way. And... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've not always been a huge fan of his for for that reason, that it's kind of hard to find that line. I am sure that we will be having this conversation for the next few months because I'm sure he will end up in an Oscar nod for this and then we'll have to um, adjudicate again whether or not um, uh, doing a lot of acting is the same thing as being a really good actor. Uh, I have one more question on just the text of this film itself, which is what what did you make of this film's racial politics? Uh, Arthur has like recurring experiences of meeting with um characters of color uh in public settings um his his uh his social worker uh this woman on the train um the uh, kind of administrative assistant at the mental hospital not to mention the the neighbor he ends up in a relationship with uh that that seem it just seems like an odd repeated trope uh, that I couldn't quite wrap my head around or try to figure out if there was something that Phillips was trying to do there inadvertently or explicitly. Uh, and I'm wondering if you have any insight for me. Yeah. Uh, my sense is that it was inadvertent and, but that, that perhaps doesn't give Phillips the benefit of the doubt. I, 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 I don't quite know because I don't think anyone is given much of a role in this. Um, even Frances Conroy, who I love, I think she's a great actor, um, doesn't isn't given a lot to do in this movie, and and it's the only two people who are given like real room to act are uh, Phoenix and De Niro, and everyone else has to sort of even even the Thomas Wayne character who shows up a couple of different times, like they all seem pretty flat, um, and they don't actually have even I mean. I was I was so weirded out by when Arthur meets Bruce Wayne for the first time, how Bruce Wayne seems to have no character either. He seems to be this like passive 
scrim upon which Arthur is sort of playing out some weird fantasy. And, um, and the racial politics, I, I, I can't put, I can't make heads or tails of it to be frank, except that, that there only seems to be two real characters in the movie, the De Niro character and the Arthur character. And, um, and they're the only ones who are allowed to have emotions besides, um, what's like, or have a character besides what's immediately being called for them to do in the plot. But I don't know, Matt, I mean, what do you, what do you see in this movie with respect to the characters and, um, and how they play out? Or, I mean, if you're feeling courageous, how does, how does this intersect with theology or ministry for you? I mean, I'm not sure I'm close enough to figuring out how or in what context I might actually use this film. But I, I've got a couple of kind of general theological observations. Uh, one is dovetailing with some of what I already said, which is how this movie thinks about the prophetic uh, and, and the role and the contemporary um, urgency of some of the biblical prophets with regards to issues of um, justice and economic inequality have a lot of traction in 2019, to be sure, uh, which is a thing hanging out in the background of this movie. But as I've already said, I, I, I think the, the the complexity with this movie is the way in which it, it it kind of nods at that critique and then also dismisses it at the same time uh, in, in, in ways that I think are ultimately don't serve it very well. I think the I think the church gets called into uh, a more profound and substantial reckoning with some of those prophetic voices, both in scripture and in, and, and in our contemporary landscape. Uh, and, and we are called to a somewhat more rigorous evaluation of what they're actually saying and not simply the kind of pat dismissal of what they say because of um, who they are or you know, the, the sort of weird characteristics of someone like Joker. The other theological direction I would take here is, is to recognize in this movie, uh, a little bit of Jesus Christ superstar syndrome, uh, which is the way that Joker becomes the, the, um, the symbol bearer for a movement, uh, without really asking for it. Um, and without being able to, uh, actually dictate any of the terms of what that movement is um, and the way the movement uh, gloms on to him without necessarily even knowing what it wants. Um, the, 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 the power of uh, celebrity in this film is, is pretty, uh, pretty substantial, um, both for the Joker as a symbol of resistance, but even for Arthur himself as he becomes kind of a YouTube star, I mean, an anachronism um, where where he gets put up on the the clips of him get showed up on the the late night talk show. uh, And so he kind of ends up viral in the capacity of the day Um, that both of these felt similar to the conundrum that Jesus faces in the Andrew Lloyd Webber play uh, and and the way in which those Mm -hmm. those kind of narrative decisions call on us to follow Jesus on Jesus's terms and not just on our own, which is a real challenging, humbling, and not entirely clear thing to figure out. What what about you, Adam? Um, There are a couple of things. I mean, one of the meta 
ideas that I keep having is just the way that this movie operates within the wider genre. Right. And I've, I've read a couple of different places where people are talking about like that with this movie and with some of the Deadpool stuff. And when, when superhero movies have taken a hard right turn into R rated territory, we are moving into a sort of new wave of thinking about the particular genre and what you can do with it. Um, and there's, there seems to be some, some measure of interest in putting these stories in the hands of directors who don't want to immediately, uh, who don't want to immediately recreate what was done before, which is pretty funny considering Joker is pretty derivative of a lot of previous genres that, so, you know, it's, 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 it's less trying to do something new with the genre and more combining the genre with other previous genres. That said, I think that movies like, I, I actually think the, the most recent Logan, that movie was great and did represent something different with respect to how, how super hero movies were being conceived. And I've, I've heard people say like, this movie is kind of like the wild bunch in that way, which I think is praise. That's a little too high. Um, but it's helpful to remember the ways in which genre isn't static. And I think that's important as we read scripture too, like that these expectations that we bring about what makes this a piece of wisdom literature or that what makes this a piece of a prophetic literature or a, a story about creation, that all of these things are, I've been kind of shifting and moving and that there isn't one set of qualifications or categories that you can use to diagnose what exactly something is with respect to its narrative. And that's a really helpful reminder to me because there are times when I just, I read Isaiah like I read Jeremiah and I have to remember not to, and I have to, I have to tell myself like, no, you have to take this kind of on its own terms. It's doing something different. Not only is it like, is the narrative different, right? They're in like slightly different times or in slightly different places, but the, just the, the ways in which people are pressing with the narrative and messing around with it is, um, changes. And so, um, so on the one hand, you know, I want to judge this according to other superhero movies. And on the other hand, want to try and take it as it is. And that tension I think is, is involved in any interpretive exercise. Um, additionally, I, I like you, I'm kind of, reflecting on the idea that each each generation gets to build its own heroes and its own villains and um and gets to gets to um gets to lift up those who they think are going to reflect the best and worst and worst parts of them and this movie kind of tries to portray what we I mean via some sort of like strange 1970s Gotham what we are trying to construct right here. And, and I watched it and it reminded me of the sort of Niberian understandings of like how each system that we are going to construct is, is, is going to have these demonic tendencies. It's going to overlook people so that even the, the institutional and systemic change that we're trying to institute in the world has lodged within it, the seeds of its own destruction. It has within it like a, a brokenness that won't ever be fixed. And according to Niebuhr, this is, this is just 
because of the way in which we build things as sinful human beings. Like, and if redemption is going to come, um, if resurrection is going to come, it has to come outside the system. And I, I really felt this because this movie might be nihilistic or it might have some sort of conscience, but regardless, it is a sort of conscience built from the ground up among, among humans. And it's still to me, not satisfactory. All right, we're going to move on to some of the lectionary texts, but before we do, we want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to some of the great work they are doing. Uh, in addition to that great work, they recently published a piece by me uh, about my experience uh, about six weeks ago visiting a border camp in Mexico just across the Matamoros-Brownsville uh, uh, line, uh, a group of migrants that have been stranded there as a result of the migrant protection protocols. Uh, and so I, I recommend that piece to you if you are interested in hearing a little bit more about the crisis happening at the border. Uh, but... Uh, you know, certainly recommend a whole variety of the other pieces adjoining it. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're looking at the lectionary passages for October 20th. We have God's promise to write the law on people's hearts in the book of Jeremiah. We have Jacob and the angel at the river Jabbok. And we have the parable of Jesus of the persistent widow. As you look at these passages, what stands out to you as you watch Joker? Well, I mean, most of my thoughts on Joker are predicated on the my reading, which is that I don't find him particularly empathetic. And now I'm going to invert that for a moment. Um, because I think if, if you do read him as an empathetic character, then I think there's some interesting ways to use this film to talk about the persistent widow. Uh, that We have this, this parable in Luke, which Jesus introduces as a parable about the need to pray always and to not lose heart. And then we get the story of this widow who has been going up against this corrupt judge over and over and over. And finally, the, the, the judge relents because the judge is tired of her complaining. Um, but this, uh, the, the Greek for not losing heart is fascinating. Uh, it's the Greek is, uh, is in kakos, which um, um, breaks apart. Kakos is actually the Greek for um, being sick. It's a sickness. And it puts a preposition around it. Obviously, losing heart is an English idiom. But in the Greek, what that actually feels like is it's, it's having a sickness on the inside. Uh, and so this is a parable about the need to not get sick on the inside, uh, uh, which, is, which is a parable about persistence in some way. Or if you read it from the judge's point of view, it's a parable about the importance of listening to... Uh, devalued or decentered voices so that the judge himself does not lose heart. You can put that either way. Clearly what happens in the Joker is a story about a man who loses heart or who, who gets sick on the inside, uh, bracketing away his kind of mental diagnoses from the beginning. What you have is someone who, whose persistence with society around him fails over time. And eventually he, he gets that inside sickness. He loses heart. Uh, and I, uh, that is, it's in more of a sympathetic read of that character than I, than I really think the movie deserves in some ways, but there are certainly ways in which you could thread those things together, uh, to talk about what that losing heart means. I, I also think it's worth noting who gets to do the pestering 
in this parable. Part of Arthur's problem in the film is the way in which he can't understand that he might be threatening to others. He's on the train with this um, mother and her young child, and he doesn't get that he might be perceived as a threatening presence. He walks into his neighbor's apartment uninvited and doesn't see that um, he might pose a threat to them. Um, He can't quite see the cultural water in which he swims, which I think is something here that also shows up between the widow and the judge, where she is um, in such a position of cultural disadvantage uh, and that that he can't quite observe. And so part of that losing heart comes from being a person without privilege, trying to go up and up against Mm. that system over and over again, which is in some ways exactly the opposite of Arthur's character, who in ways has privilege here that he doesn't quite understand and realize. Um, Right. He even says he's like, I'm not, I'm not political, even though he's the center of a political movement. Um, And whether or not he wants to be political, doesn't really matter at this point. You know, he's been made to be political. Right. So he I mean, I guess part of what I'm saying is he he identifies himself as the widow over and over. I mean, not explicitly, obviously, but identifies himself as the outsider who can't get in. But to other characters in this film, he is the center and the threat. And I think that inability to figure out which part of this dynamic he's in is part of what what breaks the film over time. Right. And um, and it might be worth us considering that, too. I mean, any congregation trying to consider where they sit. And the fact of the matter is it's not immediately clear, right? I mean, from a very high macro point of view, we sit. Um, our, our places of privilege are um, are pretty easy to diagnose. But as we begin to sort of sort out the complications of our lives, the power discrepancies that we have um, as human beings complicate these things very, very quickly. And um, and that's the hardest part, which is to sort of and I think this is why our culture continues to talk past each other is because um, we want to eschew nuance with respect to sort of positions of, um, of power or positions of subordinate power. And um, and just say, no, no, you you have power in this situation. Um, and then someone says, well, no, I, I don't. And then we sort of live in these two camps with without ever recognizing that the answer is always yes and no. Right. It's, and um, and that's like even those who I mean, as I read The Persistent Widow, like the really interesting part about this is that even those who are in subordinate positions of power and marginal positions of power still have a measure of agency by which to lever their interest to being met. Right. And this is what's so kind of radical about Jesus with this story is that he's constantly saying like, just be annoying. Right. Right. Which is, which, which is, I mean, ultimately is the center of so many protest movements. Right. Which is we, we recognize that this is going to disrupt every like everyday life for you, and this will disrupt your comfort, and that your allegiance to your comfort will ultimately be the thing that um, allows us to get the thing that we want. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. And I continue to go back to, I, I am not sure whose heart doesn't get lost in this parable. Right. Yeah. 
the the widow um, doesn't lose heart by being persistent up against systems that would like to exclude her. Absolutely. It is also possible that the judge, Ebenezer Scrooge-like, manages not to lose his heart by eventually listening to a subordinate position and a subordinate voice. Right. Uh, and so yeah, there, there is that there is hope in both sides of that, depending on your point of identification. And I think it's absolutely true that for most of us, it's yes and most of the time. So I want to talk a little bit about this movie and and the Jacob and Jeremiah passages. I mean, because the the Jacob passage is quite famously this moment of conversion um, in in a sense. Um, and that that conversion comes with a new name. It comes with a sort of like a a. Um, a physical modification and it, it comes via this, this sort of wrestling with the angel at the river Jabbok. Uh, what's more, Jeremiah's passage is a passage about how, how can, how the law of God can take root in the lives of the people. And God seems to say, look, you know, I, I tried it one way where I, I gave the law to everybody so that they would know what to do. But in giving it to them, they still disobeyed. So so now I have to do something a bit more invasive, and I actually have to write the law on their heart so that they will know what is good and right to be followers of God. I mean, I, I look at both of these and recognize these both as sort of conversion narratives, which is how do, how do people change? Um, and... The question is, is like, can outside forces force people into true repentance or true change? And um, it seems like most biblical examples is that change comes from some modification of the heart, that the that the heart is 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 reoriented in some new way by some realization, often. Um, and to me, what was interesting in the Joker as a storytelling device is that Arthur comes to this realization that he's never been happy a day in his life, is what he says to his mother right before he murders her. Um, and he says that the world has tried to tell him to be happy, to be happy. And he realizes um, that he thinks that he has been trying to be happy in a broken world. And that has been a tragedy. And the tragedy is that even though he's tried to be happy, he's never been happy. And then he comes to the realization, I'm not in a tragedy, I'm in a comedy. And this provides him some new measure of agency so that he can actually take the fully formed role of the Joker, of this, this person who's sort of nihilistic at heart, who seems to see in the sufferings of others, uh, Humor. I mean, when when Arthur is sitting on the couch in the late night talk show, he he's he says he tells a joke and he says, knock, knock, who's there? And then he said, I'm the one who killed those people or something like that. Right. And to him, this is the this is the great joke of the world. And you have two choices. You can be sad about it. And you can live in the tragedy of it all, or you can just recognize it as a comedy. And that leads to this kind of nihilism. And he, like in every origin story, has this conversion moment. But it's interesting to me that that conversion moment always comes via realization. And it does with Jacob, too, right? 
he holds on to the um, he holds on to the angel and says, "I'm not going to let you go until you bless me." And um, and then he gets a new name, <laughs> and that is the realization. Ultimately, that is the conversion. That is the blessing. That he's the one who struggled with God and succeeded, and he um, and he can't run away like he used to because he's got this broken hip, um, and now he has to actually live into this new converted. Uh, world of being Israel. And he he's able to do that to varying degrees with the rest of the story. But at least in this moment, there is this realization that then leads to conversion. And I think that that's important to consider as we think about what conversion means and how complicated conversion is in the world right now. In fact, um, Christy's been doing interesting ideas in conversion. Apparently, the Catholics have, like Catholic theologians, have a lot to say about this. Um, so, there are any Catholic scholars out there who want to like send us some some interesting ideas about like what happens with conversion and the Catholic ideas of conversion? That'd be great. I, I would also love to hear like a, just a, some literary theorists give the most sympathetic read they could to what it means for Joker to decide that this is comedy, like from a classical interpretation of what a comedy right. is. Uh, I, I would love to play that through a little bit, and I, I wonder whether or not it holds up under the hood. I'm just not, I'm not fluent enough in kind of the classic literary tropes there to be able to make those connections. Well, I'm I'm fairly confident that Todd Phillips probably called up a few Berkeley professors and asked them about the narrative yeah, that seems, theory. That seems, that seems very likely. <laughs> <laughs> it's like get me get me Judith Butler on the line. I'd like to talk about this. All right, Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? So I recently saw a really, really good new movie about an angry, frustrated stand-up comic who can't get a break. Uh, And it is the Between Two Firms film on Netflix. um, (laughs) Based on the Zach Galifianakis short series that had run through Funny or Die and YouTube many, many years ago. Um, Netflix uh, got Zach to come and do a Between Two Ferns movie, which is, you know, uh, 90 minutes if you stretch it. Uh, it's probably a solid 35 of that are just Between Two Ferns interviews. If you're not familiar, the classic bit was that Zach plays the worst talk show host you've ever seen, who is on an empty soundstage with a black background, two cheap ferns on either side, and he's got a guest who he insults and asks um, belligerent questions of. There are always famous celebrities who then um, either play it very straight or get very annoyed. But the Between Two Ferns movie uh, stipulates that Zach has been doing this uh, in a public access studio in like the boonies of North Carolina um, uh, at the behest of real life Will Ferrell, who was racking up clicks as the owner of Funny or Die. Um, But Ferrell wants to give Galifianakis a chance at, or says he wants to give Galifianakis a chance at actually being a late night talk show host. And so what they have to do is come across the, is drive across country and rack up a bunch more celebrity interviews on their way. Uh, At this point, the movie becomes a road trip, which is not spiritually unrelated to the original Muppet movie, uh, which is actually very high praise from me. Uh, And and they do some incredible celebrity interviews, uh, 
but also have to reconcile with like to what degree is their art best suited uh, but in the major Hollywood system and to what degree is it best suited for being in the backwoods of a North Carolina um, public access system. So I, I highly recommend Between Two Ferns, the movie on Netflix. Uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I'm not sure it's worth uh, an hour of critical discussion, but it's worth 80 minutes of your time and it's maybe a better discussion about uh, it for all of the critics who have taken Joker to be a kind of referendum on uh, what it is to do comedy in 2019. I think between two ferns is a much better take on that question and a much more relevant one. I look forward to watching that. I'm, I'm going to watch it tonight. So the Joker got me thinking about the ways in which the comic book genre itself has been, um, has been messed with here and there uh, uh, in, in various different forms. And I think it's worth recognizing that, you know, the Joker as a character is very, very old, right? I mean, it's, um, I mean, I think the first instance of the Joker was coming out in like the 1930s or forties and it became this sort of arch nemesis of Batman um, was the, the violence of the Joker was tempered with the comic book codes and, but then later found new life with, um, in the seventies and eighties as the Joker was allowed to be a little bit more crazy. And then finally culminating in sort of Heath Ledger as the sort of preeminent, um, depiction of the Joker, at least on film. Um, so I started thinking when I was watching this movie about other genre comic book stuff that I loved. And it reminded me of the amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay. Have you read this book? Mm-hmm. Um, Years ago. Uh, by Michael Chabon. Um, I love this book. I think it's, it's a really interesting take on the creation of comics, the sort of golden age of comics, but also is trying to do a sort of adventure comic in literary form in a way that I found super fresh and new and interesting. And if you haven't read the amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay, it's about two cousins basically who create a famous comic book hero. And then as they do that, their lives change and it's, they're changed by success, but they're also changed by war. They're changed by issues of sexuality. There's a lot of really interesting things that are going on in the book that are worth pursuing. But it was one of those moments where I was like, Oh, here's someone who a loves the genre, really cares about it, wants it to work. B knows the history of the genre and C wants to do something new with the genre. And so, um, I submit it to people to read if they want to read the ways in which, you know, narrative genres can be changed and altered in ways that are both loving and consistent with the past, but fresh and brand new. Cool. I will look forward to maybe having a chance to revisit that. It's been a long time since I've read it. And certainly before the sort of modern saturation of comic book stuff and pop culture everywhere. So it'd be good to go back and revisit. Yeah, totally. All right, folks, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Why So Serious. Thanks, Adam. Thank you.